Okay, brothers and sisters, turn with me, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to continue in verse 42 with those four pillars of the New Testament church. Last time we looked about continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and what that meant. Not that we hit the depths or the heights, but we touched the very hem of the garment of those things. Today we're going to go on to look at fellowship. The title of this, which is on the screen, The Fellowship of the Saints. A very important subject. It says in verse 42, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. These people were devoted. Devoted to the doctrine of the apostles. They wanted to be taught by them. They wanted to sit at their feet like Paul did at the feet of Gamaliel. They wanted to learn from them. They wanted to soak in and bask in the truths that they taught as they were given them through revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the apostles received direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself and that they wrote the New Testament. And Paul wrote a third at least of the New Testament. And that they were given to him, not of men, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men who were saved, who were born again, these 3,000 people were sat at his feet. Not necessarily physically, at least not all the time, but in attitude of heart. They were hungry. They wanted to feed upon the truths that these men were teaching them through Christ. But that involved fellowship. That's so why it goes on. They, they were in the doctrine of the apostles and in fellowship. Fellowship with the apostles and one another was one of the four pillars of the New Testament church. And these members continued steadfastly in fellowship. They were devoted to a new continuous way of life. This was different to anything they'd known. Again, we remember, don't we, that these were religious people. God-fearing in some way. Just like Cornelius was God-fearing, but he wasn't born again at that time. He, he feared God, but he wasn't born again. This was, this was a new way of life to them. So fellowship, or the Greek word koinonia, literally means partnership. It means to, to be sharing in life. It means... Participation. It means to have in common, which we read in that context. They held everything in common. It means communion. What has our view of fellowship typically been? That's the question I want you to think about this morning. What has our view of fellowship typically been? Is it having coffee with another believer or another bunch of believers? Is it a, a church get-together? Is it a, a church picnic or a meal? Is it merely just Christians spending time together? Ministry magazine states this. 
What does Christian fellowship mean? Is it church members chatting outside after the church service? Is it young people hiking with one another in nature? Is it having that special sense of togetherness that comes during worship? Or church friends getting together on Saturday night at somebody's home? The point is that we tend to equate fellowship with what we do. And such a tendency can play a trick on us into thinking that we're actually thriving on fellowship. While all the time our souls are still starving for it. Fellowship is a great New Testament concept. It denotes something vital to Christian spiritual health. And it's central to true church life. So we've got all these things. All the things that we've probably been involved in. And I know that this church, this far, as long as I've been here, there's a togetherness. There's wanting to join in and be a part of what's going on in the church life, which is great. But some of these examples that I've just spoken of, while in their right Christian setting, can include fellowship, they are primarily, or they primarily express the ecclesia. What's the ecclesia? The ecclesia is the popular meeting, or the religious assembly, the Christian community, basically the church. That is what the ecclesia is. These ideas promote that. But fellowship is, is not something that we merely have. But it is a relationship which involves active doing. It's not just something that we have. We don't, you know, we don't just say, well, we're just having fellowship. It involves active doing. There's involvement in fellowship. It's not just about being, it's about doing. It's about active. Activity, action, being a part of something. Participation, communion, being together. It's very likely in this church over the years and in all churches all across this land that have been involved in such activities as I've just mentioned. You know, getting together. I know there's been meals in here. Good times together. Spending time together. Going for walks. And all these things are great, and all could be a part of fellowship. But it's likely in churches across this land that all these things, all these busyness of, t- of things going on, are going on. And yet, actually, active partici- participation in true Christian fellowship is actually greatly neglected. So we can be involved in all these things and yet still be neglecting true Christian fellowship. I remember being a part of a church where we used to go out with the young people on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon for a beer and a burger or something, a Weatherspoons. Talking a long time ago, but we used to do that and it was almost like that was what fellowship was. Getting together and having a good time and because we were with people of the church it meant that that was fellowship. Actually that's not the case. 
John MacArthur quotes uh, or speaks or comments on Acts chapter 2.42 regarding fellowship. Because Christians become partners with Jesus Christ and all other believers, it is their spiritual duty to stimulate one another to righteousness and obedience. It's our duty. I want to say this to you very kindly this morning. You're not in church just for you. We're in church for everybody else as well. It's our spiritual duty to be stimulating. To be stirring up one another in their most holy faith. We're not here just to suck and to soak everything I can get for me. Of course we do. We get fed. Well, God willing we do. If we have somebody who is, uh, as the scripture says, able and rightly placed there by God to do teaching and preaching. By God's grace we will get fed. But it's like that table, isn't it, which we may speak about soon. That table that speaks about in Acts, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 11. Where these people were all rushing forward to the communion table to get their own food. And the people that were poor and hungry cast aside and barged out of the way. That's not fellowship. And that's why Paul rebuked them in Corinthians 11. Because of their treatment of the body and the blood of Christ and of the people that they were supposed to be fellowshipping with. They're there to stimulate and to stir up one another. Do you realise, friends, that your neighbour who sat next to you right now needs you? We're not called a body for no reason. Bodies have parts and they're joined. We don't go home and take our hand off and put it on the side and leave it there. It's, it's fixed, it's permanent, it's joined. I need my hands, I need my feet, I need my eyes, I need my ears. And we're a body. It says that Christ is the head and we're the body. And we're joined and we're united under that one head. Fellowship is far more than just being a part of a meeting. So let's look at firstly number one. The fellowship is relational. And a God-given privilege to the believer with Christ at its centre. Let me say that again. Fellowship is relational and a God-given privilege to the believer with Christ at the centre. Fellowship is relational. It's not a solo enterprise. You can't have fellowship with yourself. It's not a solo enterprise. So when we look at things like being on the sofa, watching things on YouTube like we're doing today. There are some people who are unable to be at church for health reasons and for one reason or another. And that's fine. But if we start to become a people who use these things for our church, it becomes an issue. Facebook and YouTube and TV Christian ministries... By and large, there are a lot of them that I wouldn't even, I wouldn't touch them with the barge pole. There may be a handful of them that are okay and are useful at times for certain things. That's not church. There is no real communication in these things. There's no affection. 
when you sit and you watch a screen. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be watching preaching on YouTube as part of a healthy Christian life and a, and a healthy view of people who are apt at teaching and I teach the right things. There'll be times when I send you links to things that I would say, watch this. This is really beneficial. This will really help you. But that's part of a healthy, balanced lifestyle of Christianity. It's not your church. And it's not, these people aren't your pastors. There's no affection over, over those kind of things. You can't greet somebody with a holy kiss as the Bible tells us to do. And what about those ministries that go on within the congregation? It's not only the person that stands here as a pastor who can be pastoral. There can be ministries, there are ministries going on within the congregation where people love each other and talk to one another and lean on each other's shoulder when they have issues or they're worried about something or they want to share a joy or, a, or an answered prayer. Or they might just need counsel from that person sat next to them who's been a lifelong Christian friend. You can't have any of that if we don't have fellowship together. You can't have any of that if we sat on a sofa watching a TV ministry as our church. Yeah. How can you share in any joys or griefs? Sharing that holy kiss and those hugs that Christian people often share. And then Christian embrace of comfort and joy and love in Christ and the Holy Spirit. None of that is received or given. In verse 44 of Acts 2 it says, All that believed were together and had all things in common. All believed were together. The Bible doesn't just say these things for no reason. They're there for purpose. One commentator says this regarding the words were together based on this verse, commenting on this verse. They were united, were joined in the same thing. It doesn't mean that they lived in the same house, that they were united in the same community or engaged in the same thing. They were doubtless often together in the same place for prayer and praise. One of the best means, he says, for strengthening the faith of young converts is for them to often meet together for prayer, conversation and praise. Let me tell you this. Fellowship is not getting together over a meal, having a laugh about what happened to you last week and then going home afterwards feeling like you've had a good time. Again, don't take it the wrong way. That you can't laugh together. You can't tell somebody what happened to you last week. It was funny. That's not the point I'm making. The point is that true fellowship consists of prayer. Of conversation on the things of God. When two people love God with all their hearts. They can get together. They can laugh. They can say what happened to them last week. It was funny. But it won't last that long. Ultimately and naturally you'll go on to speak about the things of Christ. The good things. The Bible. What you've read. What it means. Asking the other person. What do you think this means? conversation will be automatically stirred up between believers about the things of God because that's what you're about that's who you are and that's what matters it's not something that you need to put in your diary and write down next to two o'clock have conversation about God with a friend something that should happen naturally as you get together 
I mean, let me say this, as we've just heard in this commentary, and as it says in the Bible, that all believed and were together and had all things in common. Friends, prayer, corporate prayer, is a major part of fellowship. Very challenging many, to many, I, I assume. The corporate prayer, the corporate prayer meeting, if you want to put it that way, is a huge part of church fellowship. So what happens to challenge myself if I'm never there? What does that say? This is not about condemnation. It's about challenge. It's about asking myself. Phil said it this morning as he read. Examine myself. It's not just about examining yourself about have I sinned this week? Absolutely vital. It's about examining myself all over. Am I like these people? Am I hungry? Am I continuing steadfastly in this church life? Or am I a bit picky and choosy? Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, give us a real glimpse into this. This is where they are waiting in the upper room. Jesus Christ has ascended to be with the Father, and he tells them what? He tells them to wait, wait for the promise. So he says, uh, it says in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem. They did as he said. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. These people were united together. Jesus was the very centre of their life. He'd gone. He'd gone back to the Father. And he told them to wait. And that's what they did. They waited and they went and they prayed together continuously for ten days. Until the Spirit of God fell upon them at Pentecost. Again in chapter 4. I'll just read you a couple of verses from chapter 4 of Acts 23. This is after they had been uh, at the beautiful gate and the man had been healed and they were questioned and they were kind of mocked and warned not to preach about Jesus and they came back to their own people. It says they came back to their fellowship, basically. They came back to the church. It says, being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. These men went back to their companions. They went back to their brothers and sisters. Told them everything that had happened. And what did they do? They got together and they raised their voice in prayer and praise to God. Yeah. Corporate fellowship, corporate pray, praise and corporate prayer. All part of what the reality and the truth of fellowship actually is. Fellowship isn't being a part of some social activity. True enough, there are all sorts of organisations and groups and clubs that may have a code of ethics, they may have standards to live by, and in a human sense, their rule of conduct may be honourable. 
And we can all join those sorts of good humanitarian and charitable groups which care and do good. And in the common grace of God are a benefit to the world. We can all be a part of them and there are many of them. And people involved in such things may feel like they belong. Or that they're a part of some kind of fraternity. But they exist only on one level. That's the human level. The horizontal level. Jesus and the apostles never spoke of fellowship in purely a social way. Never. The fact of the matter is that true fellowship, friends, is Christian. True fellowship is Christian. It belongs in the true church of Jesus Christ. And must, of vital necessity, have its root vertically. God would. Even before horizontally to each other. If we have no fellowship with the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, any relationship we have with anyone else will be greatly limited. It may be good. We may say it's good. We may have good relationships with our families that aren't believers. But it's not godly. There may be good relationships... But they're not godly ones. They're worldly rather than heavenly. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that God is faithful. By whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. True fellowship starts with Christ. True fellowship starts with his life. True fellowship starts with how you identify with his life. Do you know that Christ lived for you? He didn't just die for you. He wasn't just raised again for you, but he lived for you. He lived and he fulfilled every law. He crossed every T and dotted every I of the law that you couldn't fulfill. And the Bible says, doesn't it, if you fulfill the law, then that would save you. That's what they thought at least. Jesus fulfilled every single part of it and he was still killed but he wasn't killed for his own sin he was was killed for ours he fulfilled that law he lived for us he lived and, and did everything that he needed to do as a man before God the very law that we would never be able to fulfill not even from our birth He fulfilled it. He lived his life for you and me. And then he took upon himself the death of all his people for their sin. So we have fellowship with him in his life. Because he lived his life perfectly. In him, God sees what he did for you. He identifies you with him so in Christ you lived a perfect life in Christ you died to sin in Christ you were buried with him 
and raised to new life in Him. Fellowship is with Christ. And without Him at the centre, we don't have fellowship. We have relationships. And so often, friends, we just amalgamate the two together. We can have relationships with people, even in churches, and actually still not be having true fellowship. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Have fellowship with us, because our fellowship is with Him. That's where true fellowship is found, in Christ and Him alone. And without Him, we may be friends, we may have relationship, we don't have true fellowship. We also have that benediction, don't we, that is often said from the pulpit, perhaps at the end of a meeting, which is the end of the last chapter of 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. You can easily say these things to one another. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we in that communion with God, with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit? For a prime example of Jesus showing true fellowship... Have a look at John chapter 13. I'm not telling you to go there now. Read it in your own time. But this is where Jesus gets up at the, the supper with his disciples. And he takes a towel and he wraps it around him. And he takes another towel. And he bends down on his knees. And he washes the feet of his disciples. Yeah. The Son of God, the spotless one. Who took on himself there, right there. Not only a servant's job, but a servant boy's job. Even the higher servants wouldn't wash the feet of the, of the, of the, of the um, people that were there. That was saved for just the young lad that was just starting off. But Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, took up himself a towel and washed the disciples' feet. That's true fellowship. That's true fellowship. So there is no fellowship without God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All real Christian fellowship between brothers and sisters works outwardly from this one relationship. Albert Barnes states, All Christians have the same hope of heaven. The same joys, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies to contend with. Thus, they have the same subjects of conversation. You get two car enthusiasts together, what do they talk about? Cars. Two football enthusiasts. Football. So what do true Christians talk about when they get together? They talk about Christ. Thus they have the same subjects of conversation. Of feeling. 
and of prayer. Or they have communion in these things. Friends, fellowship can be and shouldn't be, I ought to add, neglected. I'm not going to go into it, but over the last two years, fellowship has been greatly neglected across this land. Massively neglected. There is a time and place for that conversation. I'm not going to go into it now. But nevertheless, it needs to be heard. We've neglected it. The very command of God to have fellowship with him and his people. Hebrews have read it already. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, Let us consider one another. There we have that one another issue again. That it's not just about you. But it's about each other. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Not forsaking assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So much the more. So much the more. Not so much the less when problems and tricky times come. Number two, fellowship has unity at heart. Fellowship has unity at heart. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. In such places as Acts 1, 14, 2 verses 1, 2 verse 46 and others, we read that those spoken of were of one accord. They were together. In unity, they were with one accord. Some translations say one mind. Also, singleness of heart. They were the same. When we speak of singleness of heart, we mean sincerity, simplicity, without guile, which means deceitful or cunning, without that, without being deceitful, without cunningness. Without duplicity, being contradictory. It's a purity of intention, honesty and openness. It means being on the level with each other. That's what it means to have singleness of heart. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. And let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's everything I've just said. Except that says it better and with greater authority than I can say. Looking every man, not his own things, but also every man on the things of others. Fellowship rarely, in reality, puts other people above yourself. Puts other people first. What do we have in common as believers? 
while we were all dead in trespasses and sins, lost and bound for hell. God is our Father and the author of our salvation. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour, our Mediator, our Redeemer, who brought our salvation into fruition. The Holy Spirit has applied the work of salvation in our lives, changing us from the inside out, who indwells us and empowers us daily to live progressively in holiness and righteousness. We're all sinners, saved by grace, through faith alone. We are all one spirit in Christ. We are the body of Christ, made up of many parts, each with gifts given by God. We are all built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. We are part of the household of God. And we are all united in Christ and seated together with him in heavenly places. That's what we have in common. We must be, of course, diligent in study, in our doctrine, in the teaching. We said this last time. Making sure that we rightly divide the word, that we believe the right things, that we correct error and heresy, that we call out the false prophets, the teachers and the wolves. But should minor differences that are not fundamental be dividing the church? Destroying the unity that we share in all the above. Sadly, this does happen all too often over matters that are not dividing issues. These things, they shouldn't be a part of true godly fellowship. If we are a people with singleness of heart, then we should lovingly discuss our differences. We should have a, an openness to listen, even if we don't end up in agreement. We should love each other enough to approach each other rather than to build up bitterness and engage in backbiting. And we must then endeavour to be building one another up in the most holy faith, to stir each other up to love and good works. That's what we're there for, for one another. Not to fall out over petty little things that don't matter. One of the greatest things that people leave churches for and fall out about is eschatology. Is eschatology important? The end times? Yeah, it's important. But it's not a dividing issue. It's not a salvation issue. There may be many people in this very room that have differences of opinion about what happens in the last days. We should be able to talk about those things, agree to disagree, and stop keep going on about it. It's not important. What's important is, do you trust in Christ for your salvation? Has he shed his blood for you? Are your sins forgiven and washed away by his blood? Is he yours and are you his? Are you serving him with all your heart, mind, soul, strength? Are you coming under the teaching that God has given That's what's important. True fellowship. 
Romans 15, verses 1 through 5. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Again in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3 it says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what we're called to. Lastly and thirdly, those in the unity of true fellowship have a heart to give. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See also John 3.16, he gave his only begotten Son. Does not the scripture say that we are to be imitators of Christ? There's a wealth of scripture that tells us that the heart of a believer, or what the heart of a believer should be, how we ought to walk, how we ought to behave, how we ought to speak. And here in these verses we're told that Christ gave himself. Not coerced. Did anybody take the life of Christ from him? Now he said he laid it down willingly. Notice also when, I think it's in the account in John, when he died on the cross, it said that he gave up his spirit. He willingly laid down his life. And the scripture tells us that it pleased the Lord to bruise or to crush him. That's what it literally means, to crush the son. It pleased the Lord on your behalf to crush his son. Weigh that up in your heart and mind. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Isaac Watts wrote these words. Alas, and did my saviour bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in, when God, the mighty maker, died for his own creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face 
while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops and tears can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Fantastic. Yeah. And true words. It's all you've got to give. And that will earn you nothing. Do you realise that? Even that, even giving yourself. What did Paul say? Even those that give their body up to be burned in the fire, yet without love, is nothing. Yeah. You can't buy what he did for us. But all we have is the life that he gave us. Yeah. And that's what we can give. Acts 2, 44 and 45, again, all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. In Romans 12, 13, while speaking about how believers are to love, be kind, hating evil, being patient, rejoicing in joy, he admonishes them to be distributing to the necessity of saints and to be given to hospitality. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. R.C. Sproul making notes on the word fellowship in verse 42 and the words all things common in verse 44 says this fellowship here has a particular reference to the practice of sharing material resources with the needy since the Greek word koinonia is echoed in verse 44 had all things in common clarify the early church did not practice a mandatory communism of property such as that which required of full members of the Qumran sect. Those who had property were free to retain it or to liquidate them to meet others' needs. The divine grace that they had received so unified their hearts that they gladly and freely shared with each other as needs arose. So what is the Bible not saying? The Bible is not saying that you need to go and sell your house and come and put it in this pot here. This is giving you an example of what those men did there and then. They were so united to Christ, so united to the apostles, so united to the cause. They so loved God that they were willing to say, look, I've got land, I'm selling it, here we are. I'm giving it to you, to the church, to distribute to those who have need, for their sake. Fellowship, in part, means to be a giving people. Christ gave his all. And we need to be a giving people. And I believe we are. I really do. Praise is given to God. I believe we're a giving people. Just look at what we've managed to do here over the years. I mean, I've only been here a few months, but I've heard. It's fantastic to see what God's people, when they come together, can do. 
But that's all part of fellowship, brothers and sisters. As believers, we are saints, sanctified ones. And so are the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation for God through the Spirit. We, as lively stones, are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Let us therefore, in light of all this, press on firstly into pursuing and maintaining true fellowship with the triune God. That's our first port of call. Not to help the needy, not to help the homeless, not to help those women in refuge or those that are in debt. And I'm not saying those aren't good things, they are. And we should have a hand in them and a part to play. But firstly, we're called to maintain and to pursue true fellowship with the triune God. Father, Son and Spirit. Fellowship is with God first. And then it's with each other. But it's not merely to enjoy company. It's not to feel a sense of belonging. Although that certainly will come. But as the writer of Hebrews exhorts us. It's to provoke one another unto love and good works. Serving the one who has called us into fellowship by himself, through himself, and for himself. That's what it is to be in true fellowship. That's what we need to pursue. And by God's grace, we will continue on to do that. The question, friends, for you and for me this morning, firstly, is are you in true fellowship with the triune God? Are you pursuing him? Are you pursuing that holiness without which you can't see God? Are you in fellowship with the life you lived for you? Are you in fellowship with his cross? With the blood that was shed? With the life that he gave up? Are you in fellowship with his resurrection and justified and being sanctified? Because only then can you have true fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let that be the focus this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father God, thank you for your words. Thank you for this context of Acts chapter 2 where we find so many gold nuggets of truth, Lord God. May there be many more to come as the word of God is eternal. Never do we plumb the depths sufficiently. And as your word says, Lord, who is sufficient for such things? Lord, we barely scratch the surface. But we ask you, O oh God, would you cause us to be a people who truly love God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we might have truly fellowship with him. And that out of that relationship, out of that fellowship with the Father, Son and Spirit, 
by your grace we have fellowship with each other may our conversation be all things led into the great truths of Christ may our lives be lived before each other in purity and holiness putting each other first rather than ourselves may we not be those who either physically or metaphorically rush forward to the table to get our bit first may we put the needs of others before our own Lord will you cause us to love one another that was one of the greatest commandments you gave before the Lord Jesus went to heaven love one another as I have loved you help us Lord for we fail daily help us Lord where we're weak help us Lord where we're selfish oh how we need you Lord let this relationship be the most important thing in our lives this fellowship and relationship with you O oh God and may it be that we have because of that such a tremendous fellowship as your body with Christ as the head Lord bless the dear people here bless this church bless our children bless those that can't be here this morning and may we all go on to love each other to stir one another up in the most holy faith Lord we ask this in your name Amen Thank you.